Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, first I want to note that this is our 200th podcast, and I can't believe we're marking that milestone. But I do want to thank everyone who has been a guest, helped us book a guest, and anyone who has even listened. So really, thank you all. It's been so much fun for both of us. Now, it is definitely a sweeps month because stories are popping all over the place. So uh, people better be tuning in because we are going to see Ridge and Taylor kiss on Bold and Beautiful. The fact that Ashland is faking his illness will be revealed on Young and the Restless. And Days fans, the show is coming back from its Olympic break and we're gonna see some development in the Sarah story, namely that she thinks she is Tony's former lover, Renee Dumont. Now, if you're a GH fan, the week coming up is beyond must-see. Like we're gonna see a dramatic showdown involving Peter, Maxie, Felicia, and Anna. And I think it's safe to say that the fans have been waiting for Peter to get his and we will see if he finally does. Now, Mara, you spoke to the writers and it certainly sounds juicy. Yeah, I gotta tell you, anyone listening, if you watch General Hospital, this really is the week you cannot miss. Uh, I think the writers are very well aware that after all of the destruction that Peter has caused over the last four and a half years, fans are more than ready to see a comeuppance. And we'll have to get into this more in our next podcast, but I'm really excited to see how fans are going to react to what the show has cooked up. Uh, GH fans may also have noticed that Sasha has a new look. That's because she is temporarily being played by a different actress, Helena Madsen, who just so happens to be the sister of the OG Sasha, Sophia Madsen. When Sophia was unavailable, she mentioned her sister as a possible replacement. And Helena told me that when Sophia brought it up to her, she thought she was kidding at first. But uh, then, of course, she said yes. And she only had one day to wrap her mind around the script and, and get to work and get through a crazy day of work. Uh, she had never done daytime before, but I just spoke with her primary scene partner, Johnny Wachter, who plays Brando, and he told me he was super impressed by how professional and sort of unflappable Helena was under such high-pressure circumstances. I'm a big fan of The Rookie, and Helena is on that and is great, so I'm not surprised she fit in so seamlessly at GH. Uh, now, over at Days, James Reed is back as Clyde, and we spoke to him for an interview in the new issue. So first of all, it's crazy to think that he first came to the show in 2014 because he says his original stint was supposed to be six to eight months. But Clyde is such a great pot stirrer, and Ron Carlovati is finding new inventive ways to use him, and so I feel like we've just seen him so much since then. Um, in the story, we'll see Clyde get a new roomie in the clink, which turns out to be none other than EJ, who Clyde had, quote-unquote, 
quote-unquote killed back in 2014. Uh, it's a great twist with a base in the show's history, as is the Rene Dumond element with Sarah. I think that is very clever. It certainly falls into the category of something I did not see coming. You know, Sarah thinking she's Tony's like lover who died in 1983 was like not on my 22 Days of Our Lives bingo card. Uh, but I think it's very intriguing. And I'm always happy to see James Reed. I got a chuckle from his interview because he said whenever he gets the call from Days, he expects to be wearing orange. Okay. And I think it's really a credit to Days that even though he is incarcerated, the character, uh, they've managed to use him for different arcs over the years. And, uh, you know, to your point, there's a lot to mine, given that his new cell cellmate is someone whose quote unquote death he had orchestrated. Uh, but he's a really charismatic villain in a genre that really thrives on those types of characters. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it really speaks to the current climate and daytime as a whole. You know, I feel today's writers are so much more flexible about casting and will write actors back in for short arcs or longer arcs. And I think it only benefits the shows. I mean, Days released a promo indicating we're also going to see Greg Rickhart back as Leo, Chandler Massey back as Will, and Zach Tinker back as Sonny. So that is for sure something to look forward to. Now, Mara, you and I were both big fans of Santa Barbara. I could go on for probably too long about how the rock block, if you will, of Days of Our Lives Another World and Santa Barbara was my everything in high school, but I will not. So suffice it to say that I couldn't be more thrilled about our guest today for our 200th podcast. It's A. Martinez who hit the soap scene as Cruz Castile on Santa Barbara and has been gracing our screens since. So let's get him on the line to talk about his acting journey. Hi, A. Hi, Stephanie. How you doing? I'm really good. How are you doing? Good. We are so happy you could join us today. It is our 200th podcast. Wow. We wanted someone big and we got him. So well, we're very excited. Congratulations on 200 podcasts. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, we're going to start a little further back in your life. You're a native Californian. And while mm. you may have made your stage debut earlier than this, I'm not sure how involved you were in school plays. At the age of 12, you landed on a very big stage, the Hollywood Bowl. Your <laughs> musical talents won you a talent competition. Mm. So tell us about that. And what was the prize? Uh, the prize was, um, I think I might have gotten 50 bucks. And I think I got, I got to appear on a TV show. Um, it was hosted by a guy named John Rourke, who was sort of a L.A. television talk show guy back in the day. And I got to go on his show and I sang on his show. I sang uh, a song about being a matador and being courted by the bull. I remember I was, it was the first time I ever played the piano in public. But, you know, it, it was an amazing experience. And I I I got to at this point in time, give props to Harry Belafonte. Um, his daughter, Sherry, has become a really good friend of mine. We, we serve on the uh, L.A. Board of SAG-AFTRA together, and we're on the Ethnic Opportunities Employment Committee as well together. She's a co-chair of that committee. And, um, and I, Belafonte had caught my eye as a kid. I had listened to all of his music. I had, uh, I had you know that album where he did it, he played at Carnegie Hall and all these things he did. He was doing Calypso music. He was bringing music from, from the Caribbean up to uh, America. And he was, you know, a black man who was so beautiful and so talented and so charming. And I just fell for him head over heels. And, and when, when the, the contest came up, it was for the YMCA and my family was big in the YMCA. My dad was a gray Y guy and stuff. And we were in, you know, we, we, did, we always were in the YMCA and stuff. So this this contest came up to sing 
And if you if you made it to the finals, you got to perform on the stage at the Hollywood Bowl. So I decided to do a, a Belafonte song, and my mom made me one of his satin shirts, kind of open down to the uh, belly button kind of thing, you know, like like those Calypso shirts that he would wear on those album covers. There I am. Yeah, it was very flashy. It was it was scarlet, and um, and the guy at the at our church who was the piano player for our church. He agreed to play for me, and I went in and uh, uh, sang this song on the stage. And you know, there were uh, it wasn't full, but it was ten thousand people, and I was you know I was blown away. I was such a nervous wreck, but I didn't uh, collapse. You know, I maintained, and you know, I think that is a big part of what what enables you to become an actor is that you 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 figure out pretty early that you can handle it. And uh, I know so many people talk to me and say, well, I could never do what you do. And I say, well, you know, all of us are acting every day all the time. So actually, you probably could. And they say, they say, no, no, I bet. I mean, you know, you just, you know, you get out there and you put yourself on dis- display to be judged. And there's so much pressure in that. And of course, uh, it's true. And so therefore, I think one of the things you need to be able to do at the, early on in the process is convince yourself that, um, you can handle that. And that, that moment on that stage was a, was a moment in the right direction. Yeah, loved Amazing. it. Yeah. Well, you were properly discovered as an actor while you were a student at UCLA. So mm. tell us that story. Well, I was uh, such a great story. I was in an, the class of, of a wonderful teacher named Louis Palter. It turns out that um, all these years since, that's more than 50 years, my daughter Devon, who's a great actor, uh, is studying with that same man uh, today. Uh, he, he was instrumental in, um, in my early development. I had seen a play that he directed on, on the stage. I was no big shakes at UCLA. I was one of those guys who was looking for scraps all the time. I was not one of the kids who was in line to get the good parts and you know, I didn't know the cool kids. And when I'd go to the parties, I didn't know the Broadway songs very well. And I was always kind of feeling like on the edges of things. But I sat in the theater, the big theater at UCLA, and I watched a production of Waiting for a Godot that this dude, Louis Palter, had directed. And of course, I had never seen anything remotely as compelling as that. So in my mind, I, I was instantly elevating him to a special place. Um, a place he deserved. He's a he's a genius, and um, and then uh, as so often happened, a lot of the things I got to do at UCLA, somebody at the last minute on a show would become academically ineligible, and the director would go to the cast and say, "Who can we get? Who can we get?" And I had a lot of friends who would say, "Get A." So, <laughs> so this dude um, Louis Palter was directing uh, the Brecht play, um, "The Private Lives of the Master Race." And, and at the last minute, uh, I got jumped into that play. So this guy that I had put on a pedestal had, um, had uh, got, I gotten to work with him inadvertently. And at the cast party, he said to me, you did a really good job in the show, man. So at that point in time, I made it my business to get into his acting class the next year. And I'm sitting in that class. It was in a theater in the round at UCLA. You'd walk down the hallway and go into this door and suddenly you're in a theater and it's, you know, this, it's stacked up like this vertically in all directions. And at the top, it's really dark. And a casting director by the name of Fred Roos, who was uh, in the orbit of Francis Coppola, was there looking for a young um, 
uh, actor of color. And, uh, and he came down after uh, I was shy. It was an improvisational class. I usually never started an improv because I was pretty shy about I didn't want the responsibility for being the person to figure out what to do. But I got jumped. They were called jumps we did. I got jumped a lot into improvs by my classmates. And on the day that he was there looking, I got jumped three different times into three different kinds of scenes. And so I, he got to see me work and he came down afterwards and said, hey, man, you want to try it for a movie I'm casting? And I'm thinking, who is this guy and what is his angle? You know, this can't be real. But two weeks later, I was in Tucson uh, making a movie called Born Wild. And, you know, off of that, I got an agent and I got started. So talk about lucky. Incredible. Yeah. Well, after college, you played semi-professional baseball for five seasons. Mm. So first of all, what position did you play? Why did you I, make the sport? And did you and Drake Hogeston have crazy baseball talk in days? <laughs> oh, we so did. We so did. Back in the day when, when, when we, I was, you know, like sort of getting a little bit of that heat that he was used to getting, we would go to, uh, we would go to like personal appearances you know around the country on the weekends and so i'd be sitting by him just picking his brain because you know you know he he played with johnny bench you know he he he, he he's the what i was imagining when i was a kid might happen to me he got a taste of it at least yeah so we talked about it all the time and it's one of the things i love about drake is you know that he knows the game when you're a geek about anything to a degree that's really weird you know like i am about sports <laughs> you know it's like to come across other geeks is such it's like coming to an oasis in the desert because you can talk about all these minute details that other people care about that most people think what why would you care about that right <laughs> so yeah I, I was uh i was uh you know I, he I heard about this california baseball association through some people i knew in town when i was in my early 20s and i um ended up trying out for a team and I got on this team, the Pirates. And uh, and I had a kind of iffy experience, you know, I didn't really, I thought the coach was kind of crazy and a lot of the guys were kind of, I didn't have a great time. Um, so I started talking to my brother about it because him, him and me played baseball all the time as kids. And, and he was like really interested and he says, you know, me and my brother, Billy, he said, I think um, maybe we should like, make our own team and try to get into that league. And I'm thinking, well, you can't do that. And, and I, he goes, well, you know, maybe we could. And sure enough, so we recruited uh, our own team, you know, among all the kind of baseball loving hippies that we knew. <laughs> and a, and a, lot of, um, a lot of guys we met through guys that were, that were living in uh, Pacoima and, uh, you know, the parts of the valley that are dominated with uh, Hispanic folks. And so we petitioned the league and they took us in. So, so we actually got to play five seasons on the Tarantulas for out of Tahunga. And um, I got to say, it was so much fun. It was more fun than you should ever be allowed to have probably. Yeah. And, and you were, you were a pitcher. I was a fail. I was a pitcher in my first season with the pirates, my difficult season. And then I, I gave that up and I, I was thinking, well, I'd always love to play, uh, the infield and I sort of fancied myself as possibly a shortstop but the truth was I was a failure as a shortstop I didn't really have the hands that were quite quick enough to play that position so I ended up playing second base and my brother played shortstop Billy because he has quicker hands than me and you know you need to be able to field everything clean when you're when you're the shortstop because it's a long throw but if you're at second base and you maybe come up a little bobbly with the ball you might knock it down instead of catch it 
You have a chance of still getting the guy out because it's a, sh- a shorter throw. So I was a failed shortstop. And, <laughs> and, I, and because it was my brother playing um, beside me in the infield, and, and, you know, I was always pretty much between jobs. And whenever he was between jobs, we could actually spend time just working on, you know, turning a double play, doing the things that in- middle infielders have to do. So we got pretty good at it, and we had a wonderful time. And in our fourth season, we won the league championship, and wow. which, which was, you know, a massively wonderful thing because we were for sure the team of all the teams in this league. Uh, we were having the most fun. You know, we would party after every game on a level that was pretty special. <laughs> this needs to be made into a movie. I, know. I, I feel like it's not all the I know, I know. But it but there was a lesson in it too, and that is that, you know, we were we were hippies, you know, we were like we were peace, love, and understanding. And and so when we won, suddenly all these really wonderful players uh, elsewhere in the league who had early on, to be honest, had been mocking us, suddenly they were petitioning to be on our team. And we're thinking, <laughs> Oh, we got to get this dude because he's he's got this amazing arsenal of pitches. We never wanted to hit against his guys. It's a great pitcher. And so we got him on our team. And then you realize that this guy is not a hippie. So if you make a mistake behind him, he's looking at you like you're like you're vermin, like you're dirt. He's just basically looking at you like you need to be punished. So suddenly everybody is like losing their vibe of being, you know, pulling together and it starts to become toxic within the confines of the of the team so by adding to the team we broke it mm. and that after that year we were done wow but we had a lot of fun though that's amazing oh my goodness all right well let's let's skip ahead a bit to uh to hear the story of your casting on santa barbara because it's quite a fantastic one and you came very close to saying no to the job so tell us about that i did and you know i i, I I told this story on the Santa Barbara cruise and, and Lane Davies sort of, he sort of put a comment after my comment to kind of clean up after me. He, he might've th- thought I was being a little bit uh, off the hook, but it's the truth. So, you know, at this point in time, you got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I didn't really ever watch soaps growing up. I didn't have a relationship to soaps. My, my wife, Leslie did though. And, and I once, sort of got pulled in watching Judith Light work. Um, I, I remember walking by and being, you know, stopped in my tracks and just asking Les, who's that? And she told me, and I found my way to getting back there the next few days in a row to make sure I could see what was going to happen to her. And um, so there was that one moment, but generally my memory of him was that it was a place where actors were given unplayable tasks, you know, where you just couldn't do it. I think the worst thing was watching, watching when a scene would end and they, they, they needed the extra time and, you know, the scene's over and they would just leave the camera on the actor. And you'd watch these actors like try to fill up and make this, this space, this time compelling with nothing left to do in the scene. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a, that's a bad fate. I don't want any part of that kind of entertainment. You know, I don't want to be that person ever. Anyway, so my agent tricked me kind of, but he told me that Santa Barbara was a show like Dynasty or Dallas, you know, where you're, it's a nighttime show, you know, it has soap opera, you know, tropes working, but it's, it's filmed and you're spending, as I well knew, 
seven days to shoot an hour show and you know it shows the production values and stuff and the chance to do things over if you screw them up all that stuff um and it wasn't until i got late in the process that i that i understood that actually no it was a it was a soap opera on the daytime so you'd have to do a show every day and then i got the script and i could not handle it i didn't know what to do with it uh, i was uh, i was just overwhelmed with uh, doubt and uh, you know worry about I'm gonna I'm gonna be terrible in this I don't know how to do this it's it's too sentimental I don't know it's so florid I don't know where to go florid is the lane a word lane used after I spoke about this and the, that's a good word to, to to describe it it was just so over the top and I Leslie said well why don't you uh, rewrite it so I thought about that and. Um, and I ended up going down to a park on Olive Avenue in Burbank, just a mile or so from NBC, sitting under a big oak tree with a yellow legal pad. And I just spent a few hours writing something, a, a version of this scene that I could play that wouldn't have all these things in it that, that I felt I couldn't handle. So when I went to the audition, the, the, the casting director's name was Rupert, and he, he had an assistant named Carol and she was walking walking the room. There were thirty people waiting in a room to like try out for crews. I was sitting next to my pal Richard. I remember, and she was walking up and chatting each one of us. And she said to me, "How you doing?" I said, "Well, you know, I'm 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 really sorry to say I could not figure it out. I didn't know how to make the scene work. I tried and I failed, which was true. I failed to make that scene work. And I said, but I could do this. And I handed her my yellow legal pad and to her. I mean, my good fortune. She just leafed through and said, oh, we could do this. And she was a good actor. So she stood off camera and did my scene for my audition for Cruise. So I had an unfair advantage over those other guys. And I've told several of those guys in, in the ensuing years that story. And of course, they're really, they don't want to hear that story. That was you know, <laughs> so depressing to think that a person, you know, would do something as, as arrogant as that. But, you know, I just felt it's my only shot. And of course, it was such a blessing. And even though, you know, it was an insult really to probably the Dobsons who, who probably wrote that scene. Um, uh, Bridget Dobson was not going to let me say no. She, uh, I, I said, I, no, I don't know. You want two years of this? I don't think so. And, and I was legitimately, uh, I wasn't playing, but, but they pretended I was negotiating. And they just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And finally, the um the casting director got with my manager dolores robinson and said hey, you know what a is making a mistake here because he's he's been acting for a long time but he's never really getting the kind of part where he can show his heart he's always playing the bad guy or the misunderstood guy or the friend of the important guy but he's never really playing anybody in the middle of things and this might change his career he's making a mistake and she got to me and said you know rupert is a wise man you should maybe think about this and so i said yes and thank god because obviously, um, my life to this day is is vastly better than it would have been had I not t said yes to Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Mine too, eh? You know. <laughs> um, well, when you started on the show, Santa Barbara really hadn't found its creative groove yet. So when you look back, what stands out to you about your very early days on the show, which I believe were marked by a lot of very long shooting days as well? Oh my goodness, we you know. <laughs> I remember Jeffrey Hayden coming us coming up to me in the hallway in the building and saying, 
dude, what is going up with you? I cast all you hunks and you're all shrinking. You're disappearing inside your clothes. What's with losing all this weight? And I'm saying, man, well, you know, what, what, what do you want us to do? We were, we were, we didn't finish before midnight for six weeks. And we had to be there, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. A lot of people, including myself, spent some of those nights sleeping in our dressing room because you couldn't afford the time to drive home and drive back. Uh, it was just nobody involved in the production, pretty much. Most of the people had never done a soap opera, and they didn't understand the difficulties inherent in getting something like that up and on its feet from 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 get from the get. So. Uh, it was incredibly hard, and and I I just think that uh, I remember we 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 had such a party when we finally finished before midnight. We barely <laughs> made it, but we had such a party over that. Any excuse for a party, but you know the show was was having trouble, and uh, and it was it was floundering. There were a couple of really awkward moments. I remember they did an earthquake to thin out the cast. Some of the some of the people around the country, the affiliates were threatening to like take it off the air if the ratings get, didn't get better. So NBC um, decided to do a thing where they were going to make a big, big show of having an earthquake in town, kill a whole bunch of the cast members that they, they, they wanted to thin the cast. But they made a mistake on the lot in Burbank and they put that feed that was going out to the affiliates. It went up on our dressing room. It went up in our makeup room. So it was on the monitor while while we were all in there, a bunch of us were in there getting made up and they were, you know, sort of muttering about this thing. And we're looking up and there's a picture of, of all these faces of people in the cast. And then across a whole bunch of faces, big red X's popped to show us, to show the affiliates, all the characters they were going to get rid of in their attempt to like streamline things, which was a terrible, terrible moment for our morale to say the least. And in in the mix, in my not so humble opinion, um, I think uh, uh, there were there was scapegoating going on, right? I think uh, Dane, uh, who was playing Joe Perkins, was singled out for being a problem. And I was thinking to myself, Are you watching the same show I'm watching? You know, uh, this guy's chemistry with Robin Wright was phenomenal. Um, he was beautiful. He, he did all the stuff. He was professional. He said all this stuff when he was supposed to say it. You could stack his acting against pretty much anyone else on the show. And he's right in there holding his own. And I'm thinking, why? Why are we going to pick this guy to be made the scapegoat? That was my opinion. And of course, he was a friend of mine. So maybe I was biased, but I loved the dude. And I thought he did really good work. And I thought he got dealt dirty by being singled out. Um, but because things were so... Um, so sideways and crazy and chaotic that we're looking for some other direction to go. And uh, um, Jill Phelps suggested to Brian Franz that uh, they should give me a chance with Marcy. You know, Marcy was supposed to be, you know, dealing with whether she'd be with Warren Lockridge or Lionel Lockridge. And I was supposed to be uh, over there with Santana. And, you know, to cross our two worlds in that way on that show was a pretty bold um, idea to, to um, promote, but she promoted it and uh, he backed it and um, bang. They wrote us three days and I'll never forget this as long as I live. Um, Jill said to us, you know, okay, here, we're going to write you three days. We're going to put you alone together for three days. You're stuck with each other. And so don't waste it. You know, 
don't complain later about if only the writing had been and if only the directors had thought of don't say any of that bullshit basically make this work as good as you can it's on you do what you have to and if you have to change anything i'll have your back and she did so marcy and i went ahead, went away and uh, put our heads together and imagined a whole bunch of stuff we do. Marcy was really, really good at uh, at filling out our backstory. You know, she figured out a lot of stuff that was really compelling, and she shared it with me, so we were on the same page. And I, my my goal was to find a way to to get on the floor together, and you know, we found a way to kind of make that happen architecturally, and just so we could basically show that maybe there was something going on between these people that uh, had to be uh, investigated. And the people liked it, and we got our chance, just like that. Bang. Well, Cruz and Eden, I think, are special for so many reasons. And Cruz was a landmark character for so many reasons. And he really was like the first Latinx romantic leading man in daytime history. And I, I think when we think of Cruz and Eden, we just think super couple. Everybody loved them. But at the time, there were basically not a lot of non-white characters in love stories anywhere in daytime. So I'm curious if you, um, if you recall, since this was an interracial coupling, you know, was there any pushback from the audience that you can recall or any fear of possible pushback from the audience behind the scenes of the show? There was, there was direct pushback. I was not um, privy to what letters are getting written to people higher than me, but you know, in the, back in the day, we were getting fan mail every single day was delivered to our room. So people could communicate with you directly. And I, I got, I got, you know, hate mail over it. You know, I mean, most people were cool, obviously, that would bother to write, but few people, you know, uh, you, you greasy pig, you know, I can't believe they let you put your greasy hands all over that beautiful woman. And, um, you know, this is just wrong. You know, this isn't, you know, God's uh, plan. And there was stuff that was crazy. And I, and I know that um, in my real life around that time, I got a hate letter del uh, delivered into my mailbox. Mm -hmm. And in the same community where I live, another friend of mine, an actor friend of mine who was uh, married to a person of color, um, he got on the same day a hate mail in his mailbox. So, you know, you knew that somebody in the town where you live was clocking what door you opened in the morning to go drive to work and and was so incensed about, you know, the the, the polluting of purity on some level that uh, that they would actually, uh, you know, leave you a, a vicious letter in your mailbox threatening you and your family and stuff. So it was real. And of course, you know, we've seen we've seen that to this day. It's stuff like that is not going to go away universally anytime quickly. It's just got to be an incremental process of of pushing things down the road. But it's getting there. You know, we're getting better. And uh, and I I do take a certain pride in uh, having been given that responsibility or that task or that opportunity to be part of you know, making, making things better. And I really do think that um, the way Cruz was written made it possible for a lot of people for the first time, maybe to, um, to kind of go, oh, well, gosh, you know, maybe a person like that is really okay. You know, it's really better than okay. Maybe, maybe he's a really cool guy, you know, and I just think it was beautiful that they did that. I mean, I, at the time I was not really aware of 
the long-term term import of it. I was, my hands were so full just trying to cover the workload. It was so hard to cover the workload and never got easy. And, and I just think that um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't really think about the responsibility of it. I'm glad I just was able to do it. And, you know, it, it snuck in when people would write mean letters and stuff, but mainly I just felt uh, honored by the opportunity and honored by the, uh, by the response to it. I got to say, forgive me for ranting on and on, but one of the sweetest moments of my life was when I, when I won the Emmy. Um, after the ceremony, Leslie and I stood in, in an adjacent uh, ballroom next to the theater. I think it was at the Waldorf Astoria. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. But, but we stood in this massive room, and for three solid hours, uh, people came up to me and her to express their appreciation for my work and to say how happy they were for me that I had been uh, acknowledged. And it was amazing. You know, you never forget something like that. It changes the tone of your life forever to think that, wow, all these people, many of whom I don't really know at all, are just feeling so much positivity toward me because of the work I've been doing. And it just makes you feel really good about yourself. It was wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Um, now, in 1988, going back two years prior to your Emmy win, uh, Cruz and Eden were married off in a sumptuous <laughs> wedding shot on location in Carmel Valley, California. So mm. we have run those photos so many <laughs> times over the years. We feel like we were there. But what do you remember <laughs> about the filming experience? Well, it was surreal. Um, you know, we had been, uh, we had, you know, the, the, the kind of word on the street was you can't, you can't marry them off because once they get married, they'll be boring. And, uh, and so I, I was really surprised that they actually decided to go through with it. There was a joke going around, you know, we were shooting that on the 1st of April. So maybe this is some elaborate prank or something, but, um, but, you know, uh, it happened and, it gave us a chance to go away to, to some place that was so beautiful and special. Um, Rick Benowitz, the the uh, who was our go-to director whenever we'd shoot on location, he was somebody that really knew his way uh, around shooting in a film style. I had worked with him in Lima, Peru, previously on a show that he did down there called "Love in the City of Kings," and and I knew him a bit. And he uh, he got that gig. So anytime we got to go on location to work with Rick Benowitz was just uh, th just that in and of itself was a special thing. But there were so many aspects to it that were that were out of the ordinary and 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 special and fun. I got to uh, I got to ride a jumping horse, you know, like a a white horse working out on the grounds there. Somehow they figured out that Cruz was like someone who could ride uh ride english style and jump horses and stuff and you know just all this stuff they were always imagining that crews could do <laughs> and you know so you know okay well i'll do that i guess and that ended up uh turning into the habit crews had of getting on white horses that like to rear up on their back legs all the time just this really heroic you know over the top trope of uh, of male courage and class under pressure and all that stuff and i think the thing that um that I'll always, always remember about it uh, most was that uh, they they let Marcy and I write our own vows, um, and I thought, well, that's so cool. You know, I'm not sure we even had to ask, or maybe it was assumed or whatever. But I just thought, what a cool thing to do, because it gave us a chance to kind of acknowledge 
one another on a personal level, even though the, you know, you know, Cruz and Eden weren't real, but, but our relationship was real. And by giving us that gig and that kind of ceremony to tell that story, it kind of, uh, it gave us a chance to express a certain level of respect and affection for one another that, that we were really carrying. And I love that about it. That was uh, the thing I, I take away and hold most, most fondly. And in that same vein, because of the way the sun was setting, um, the sun in the sky and her veil, uh, I couldn't see her eyes very well when I was speaking to her. And it was driving me nuts. It was just driving me nuts. Because he realized, I'd already known this, but one of the things that, that happened between us, um, to a degree that's so rare, uh, we lived in the space between one another. You know, when, when we were working, the sum, the, it was, it was, the whole was always greater than the sum of its parts. There would be something that would happen between us because of the, of the way that we connected uh, as actors, our, our style, our approach to it mentally, and the way we chose to work on the stage. It just lent itself to this kind of bang connection that we were very rarely without. So on the day when I couldn't see her eyes very well on this day where I'm saying these things to her, that was a source of incredible frustration. And I, and I said to Benowitz, I said, hey, I, I, I'm really struggling to see her. Can we do something about this? And he goes, man, it's so much more beautiful a shot with this gauzy thing over her face. And then when it comes time to kiss her, it'll be such a, we got to have that. So I had to like stifle my personal disappointment for the sake of the show. But I loved it, and I'm so grateful that uh, that, that after doing it, Santa Barbara uh, gave the lie to the idea that you can't marry people and have them remain interesting. They just wrote such beautiful stuff for us all the way up until Marcy left. Yeah. Well, it was something of uh, a narrative riddle in need of solving. You know, after she left, what happens to Cruz? Who do we pair Cruz with? And you got to work with two, uh, one an Emmy winner, one a future Emmy winner, uh, Kim Zimmer and Eileen Davidson as they were trying to work through that. So what are your memories of working with the two of those actresses? Well, I loved working with both of them. And I, I, it really bothers me that um, there is so much uh, antagonism about, uh, you know, the fact that that I stuck around and, and did that. That Cruz, you know, Cruz, well, how could he possibly, what would he, what was he thinking? It's, you know, I mean, a lot of people are really upset about it. And, you know, uh, I just, I wish that weren't the case. I understand it, but I wish it weren't the case. I think, um, I feel uh, bad. I've always felt bad that, um, you know, because Kim came, I think, with the promise, with the idea that, you know, she'd be getting to work with me. And, you know, I had a lot of respect for Kim. I've been watching her, you know, Kim. So amazing, such an amazing actor. And, and of course, I, I really did not intend to leave, but I got offered L.A. Law and I'm conducting a, a career and I, I could not say no to L.A. Law. You know, I mean, I literally, I wasn't even looking for it. They came to me and said, do you want to come and do the show? And I said, well, how am I not going to do that, right? At the end of the day, you know, you're, you know, here I am all these years later, still having a, a viable career, you know, and, and I mean, that that's got to have been a part of it is to get 
you know, make the transition from that into a show that had that much honor and attention and stuff. It really helped me get established again on another level. So I had to do it. But I really felt lousy that, you know, Pam Long had come to write and, and you know, Kim had come to play. And I had to say, you know what, I'll see you later. It was really tough. And Eileen, I loved working with Eileen. Eileen is amazing. And I I just, again, you know, the, the, the antagonism that's expressed toward me for doing it and toward her for, you know, daring to, you know, you know, I'm, I'm sure it rolls right off her back. But, but I loved working with her. I, I, I thought that we had a, a really cool thing that we built. Um, you know, I have experience in my own life, you know, of like, uh, I know what it's like to love two sisters. You know, I wasn't looking for it, but sometimes, you know, circumstances put you in a situation where years go by and suddenly you're in a situation where, oh, you know, something might happen, you know, and it's like, it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of crime against nature to like, to do such a thing. So, you know, I, I, I obviously feel the need to defend it, but, uh, but I don't think uh, Eileen needs to, I'm sure she's not worried about it, but I, I loved it. I loved it. Well, it was in 1992 that you left Santa Barbara to join the cast of L.A. Law as Daniel Morales. Uh, you spent a handful of seasons there. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was great. You know, it was it was hard after um, all the years uh, at Santa Barbara with dealing with this giant flow of uh, information. And I was uh, in the habit of learning the things that were there were certain scripts that would come down that were so perfectly in place in terms of how they matched up to the templates that we all start carrying around the thing that happens after you've been acting a while and you've been doing all these scenes you have to make all these decisions about the why okay why is the character doing this why is he seeing this why is he reacting this way you have to justify all that and you start to build up this experience this accrued experience and sometimes a script would come that just would be absolutely impossible to fit into the templates of who you're carrying around to be so you'd have to fix it so i was constantly kind of tweaking things to fix them and when the scripts were in sync i would learn them word for word like any good actor on the stage would do but uh go to la law and you know my my habit of like fixing everything to make it fit my preconceptions was gone. And I'm having to master this new character who is a lawyer with the, the difficulty piled on top of it that that show was rewriting their stuff regularly right up until um, the last second. It was not uncommon. To have them knock on your door at nine yeah, at your home at nine or ten o'clock at night and here's tomorrow's script and and not only is do you have to show up and know it but it's different than what you thought it was going to be and there is no um there's no appetite for you can paraphrase or you can do this you're going to say these words they were they were attentive to the punctuation of the sentences so it was a lot harder and there were um one of the one of the habits the show had to do was they they would a lot of times do a tracking shot in the beginning where they would walk with a steady cam through the bullpen and they would do little vignettes they would just come across vignettes of all these different characters kind of laying in the seeds of all the things the show was going to be about and you know that was a thing where 
where it's all one shot. So if anybody screws it up, they got to start again. And we regularly did 20 takes of that shot. And so you don't want to be the guy that makes them have to go back and shoot take 21, right? So it was very, very intense. Um, and I and I loved it. One of the best things about it was getting to work with Sheila Kelly, um, you know, Gwen. I, I got to, you know, we had a thing. And I uh, later on, years later, she got offered this really cool movie. Uh, and she uh, suggested me to play the villain of the piece, a uh, character with whom she had a lot of... Um, extremely erotic uh, mischief to, to do and and i and i so a i got favorite to, kind of mischief hello uh, oh my gosh <laughs> it was so cool and and you know great writer and uh, so i got to meet her and get to know richard a little bit uh, her husband from that and uh, that was one of the nice things about doing la law was it, it led to that getting to meet Sheila and become friends with Sheila and Richard. Well, two years after LA Law A, you did a movie called The Cherokee Kid, which you've said uh, in other interviews was one of your favorite projects because of how much fun you had with one of your co-stars. So you better believe I'm not letting this opportunity to go by without <laughs> hearing a Sinbad story. Well, you know, <laughs> that dude, I remember I was out in New Mexico when I was doing Longmire, I would fly into Albuquerque and then rent a car and drive up to Santa Fe. And I remember one day um, there's Sinbad on the, his, his name's on a billboard because he's, he's doing his act on the road, right? And he's, he's appearing at some casino nearby. And I was thinking, oh man, I wish I could see that, but I'm going to be gone when he comes. I just love that dude. He grew up in a, uh, his father was a preacher in Detroit you know, like a, like a legendary preacher. And so he grew up in that kind of family where spiritual values are, are um, taken for granted. He's just uh, unbelievably generous. Uh, regularly, uh, he would say, uh, we're about, about to go and he'd say, everybody good? Everybody good and stuff? And if I was in this scene, he'd go, you good, eh? And i go, yeah, I'm good, bad. He goes, well, you need a moment? We need to get, we need to get a, a moment. Let's, what, are, what can we do to get a, a moment? I'm thinking, no, I'm good, bad. No, let's get you a moment, eh? Come on. I mean, you know, nobody does stuff like that. <laughs> this is the star of the show, constantly looking to make things pop for the people around him. You know, he, he, he doesn't subscribe to that idea that if you're shining, it's, it's, it's stealing my light. He doesn't, he's not that, that at all. He's, He's just a generous dude. He, his family came to visit one day and his, we're out in this Western town, you know, we're all sitting around the stuff and, you know, our costumes and suddenly what's going on? It's Bad's daddy. And there's his father walking down the street. He's even taller than Sinbad with his wife. And they're just walking down the street. They're visiting from Detroit and you just go, oh, well, that's why Sinbad is the way he is. Cause that's who he grew up looking at, you know, is that man, <laughs> you know, I, um, I got to say too, one of the, so I just love work with him. He, he, my, my wife said, she said, you know, you're happier in this gig than any gig I've ever seen you on, you know? And I, I remember um, one morning it was James Coburn's uh, kind of introduction in, into the story. You know, he's, he's got this wonderful kind of fancy speech that um, the writer Tim just wrote all this really great stuff for us. It was just wonderful writing, and and he's he's got to like you know make his villainous debut and say all these cool things and stuff. And he was struggling. He was you know he was having a hard time remembering it, and and he would get down on himself when he when he forgot and stuff. So we took a break, 
And I remember we, we retired up into one of those porches on the western town, you know, the planks are laid out and there was a few rocking chairs and chairs and barrels and bales of hay and stuff. And a bunch of us actors just all kind of went up there into the shade and sat around and, and Jimmy Coburn had did the main rocking chair and, and we just all started telling stories about when we first encountered James Coburn. And what our favorite James Coburn moment was, you know, in Like Flint and all the all the amazing movies that he had done. And and he's laughing, you know, and we're just, you know, we're just like, we're just in our reverie, just like giving love to Jim Coburn. And then they set up for the new shot and they take us out in the street and he stood out there with all that love on him and he just killed it. He went from being a dude who's, you know, not quite so sure and having trouble and feeling bad on himself because he couldn't remember all this good stuff in the script and he just killed it. And it reminded me that no matter how big a star you are, like how famous you are, how respected you are, we all need to be nourished with whatever it, it takes to have us hold a good thought about ourselves when we're, when we're doing the work. Never forget that. I love that story. Mm. Um, now in 1999, General Hospital called you back to daytime to play the role of Back from the Dead, Roy DeLuca, where you worked closely with Jackie Zeman as Bobby and Tony Geary as Luke. So tell us about your time in Port Charles. Well, it was amazing. Um, gosh, it was so amazing. I, I, uh, I thought Tony Geary, um, I thought to myself, if this, if this is the last day of this guy's career, He's going to be able to go within. Yeah, I killed it. I went out with my boots on. He took it. Uh, he attacked it so fiercely day in and day out. You know, it's like when you've seen people playing the same guy for a long, long time, it's, it's easy to see those days where they're just not quite as into it as they are on some other days. You know, I mean, I know that how that gets you. The fatigue once it starts chewing on you. What can I do to kind of get through this, you know, making it a little easier for myself? But he never did that. He was just just amazingly um, attentive to um, to getting the most out of himself all the time. So I love that. That was a that was a treasure to get to get to work with him. I got to say, all these the, this whole journey, the, the very best thing about it. And I've told this to my kids. The best thing about it is the people you get to meet who are drawn to this business, who are drawn to this tag, who, who want to be storytellers on this level. You know, the, the people that want to do it are just, they're, they're different than most folks are, and they're a good bunch to be hanging around with. So that was a perfect example of it. And I thought that Jackie Zeman and I built a wonderful thing. I, I, it, was, it was kind of her i saw her in a in a ben and jerry's actually in line we were in line to get ice cream just happened to stumble onto each other and she said you know there's uh, they're bringing back this character that my character used to be involved with so would you be interested in, you know you might be in she like put the seed in the wind for that to happen actually bless her heart and i love that i get to see her again now and work with her on the bay she's a remarkable practitioner of this craft, to say the least. Uh, our kids grew up together and uh, did some dancing together, and we used to raise money together for the local dance academy and stuff. So we, we've got a good history going by. And I, but I, I loved it, and I, um, I, you know, I, I had some, some memories. One, one, it's kind of funny that that 
sticks in my mind. I've told this, and I, for, and I apologize to people who've heard my stories before, but there's a finite amount of stuff to say, I gotta think. <laughs> but I, I, one day I was doing a scene, it was toward the end of my tenure there, and, um, and, and it was gonna be revealed that Roy was really not on the outs with Sonny. Roy was actually secretly reporting to Sonny. He, was, he had Sonny's back, they were in cahoots. So they go to Roy's kind of like sad apartment um, where he was staying currently. And we're sitting around in two, the big reveal, there's, there's Roy and there's the guy, anyway, my God, it's Sonny. And the two of us are sitting there in, the, in these overstuffed chairs in my sad little apartment. And they had footlights in front of us. There were like, um, there were uh, like, I think uh, four footlights around, around um, Maurice. And there were two or three maybe around me. And, uh, and I noticed that one of them wasn't pointing at me, you know, and I thought, well, there's no use. There, there are these really beautiful like amber lights that sit on the floor and cast a kind of amber glow up to kind of, you know, kind of make your face look smoother and younger and stuff. And I, so, you know, I'm thinking, well, Maurice has more than me, but he, he's entitled. I get that. Um, and I remember the days when I had the most light on this, on the stage and Santa Barbara Cruz and Eden's place was like, brilliantly lit compared to every other place, which is where Sonny's place was like on GH back in the day. So I, I mentioned to the stage manager, I said, you know, one of these, uh, one of these floor lights is, is, it's missing me. It's, it's not pointing at me. It was, you know, it's going by my shoulder, you know, and, and what I could have done was just stand up and walk over there with my foot and kick it into place right, or move it. But I didn't do that. I, I did the right thing, which is ask the person whose job it is to move it. So I said, you know, one of these uh, lights is like missing me. And, uh, and he gets on the headset and he goes, eh, and he goes oh, and, they and he calls the, the grip over to the stage hand and the guy grabs the thing and turns that one to towards Maurice as well. So, so it's like now Maurice is just that much brighter than crew than than uh, Roy, um, and I thought, well, there's the metaphor for the way things have have changed in my position in this game. But um, and then shortly thereafter, I was uh, I was uh, shown the door, and and the person who fired me was Jill Phelps, who actually had the task of giving me the news. You know, she walked up to me in the hallway and said, "We have to talk." You know, I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> and you know, it's another measure of the way the thing works. You know, the person who was responsible for making it all happen was also the person who was tasked with, uh, you know, punching me out when it came time to, to punch people out. This is when uh, the economy, uh, this is after 9-11 and ABC uh, had the biggest loss of revenue in a single quarter of any TV network in history. So people had to go and I was, uh, I was targeted. You Loved got the, the affiliate red XA. I got the X. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've seen that X, you know it's looming out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, another, uh, I think, sadly short-lived moment for you on daytime happened uh, from 2008 to 2009 when you went to One Life to Live to play another Roy, correct? Uh, yeah. God, was it? Yeah, he, he was Roy also, wasn't he? Yeah. Roy Montez, I believe. Montez, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. So uh, there you worked with Robin Strasser, another daytime Emmy winner. I mean, just daytime Emmy winners, left and right. And your daughter on the show uh, was um, 
Lola, played by Camila Benuz, who you'd later work with again on Days of Our Lives. So tell us about your One Life experience. Well, that was great. You know, it was wonderful to get to work with Camila. I also got to work with Britt Underwood, uh, and that was real special. That's a special awesome. actor right there. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, and I got to do one scene with Erica Slezak. One scene, which actually, uh, you know, that was, that's something I'll never forget. I've always put her up and she's on the mountaintop, that woman. So, yeah, so that was, that was cool. And I, you know, I, I, I regret the, the, the path I took with him. He wasn't supposed to become a regular. So I basically played him as someone for whom English was uh, somewhat difficult. And by so doing, I imposed a rhythm on him that was, it became tarsome. I, even I got sick of looking at him. Um, you know, it's just like, dude, you know, how long is it to take you to say, you know, everything you say takes twice as long as any other person on this show. It's really, <laughs> we get it. We get it. But, you know, once you've established it, it's like, it's hard to like throw it away. Like it, it doesn't matter, you know? And I tried to Not for of, some people, eh? <laughs> I feel like we've seen, you know, accent changes and what have you. Yeah, I know. Yeah, inadvertent. <laughs> I've done a few of those as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, I know. Um, I know. It, so that, that I, w I was, when I look back on him, I was thinking um, that's really, that was unfortunate. But, and, and I'll tell you, uh, I was digging it. I loved working with Robin. Robin's process is just amazing. I mean, the 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 intricacy, the the attention to detail that we would investigate every morning. We get her get it together in her room and talk about what we were going to do, and we talk about it on a level that I've really never done with anyone else before. Um, just in terms of the precision of the why of everything. It wasn't about so much of the, you know, a lot of times you work on the details and what's the flow going to be and where are the beats and stuff like that, but the precision of the why, you know, why are they having this day together? What's going on? It was a wonderful experience and such a fine actor. And so that was great. And I remember and in my mind, I was creating this kind of trope. Well, you know, you owe it to forces beyond yourself to never say yes to working in on an ABC so, show again, because the same thing happened um, in in that experience as happened uh, on GH, which is that there was a massive blow to the economy. In in that case, it was the uh, the big crash uh, when the when the market fell out and the banks had to be bailed out. And the and I remember they just there was this massive um, loss of, of of funds on the on behalf of the network. And I remember walking down the hall uh, when on the day when when the word when the, the meeting had been held to explain it, and uh, Frank Valentini was walking the other direction, and he looked like he just had seen a ghost. Um, he was so he just looked like so outside of himself. And of course, what he'd been told was that you know all of your all of your contracts, boys and girls, are null and void an act of God has occurred and, you know, we're, we're in a completely different reality right now. So, you know, you're, you're not going to be uh, able to be continued to make the money you were making. And in my case, again, being someone who was expendable, I was, uh, that was my exit from that show. And so two of the ABC shows I exited under the 
the duress that befell the finances of the whole country. So I always thought, well, that's interesting. Don't want to tempt that particular fate again, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, don't let the third time be the non-charm here, eh? Like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, although if GH were to call me, I'll tell you what, I'd be answering that phone call right now. <laughs> it's we're, a gallon one count. You've already done it. That yeah, that's bad. true. Yeah, you can't do that there again. You go. That's okay. You you can do it again, and nothing will happen. Um, well, but you know, you got you got Maurice Bernard over there, and that's you know that's always something all actors want to be close to. I think there's amber lights waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, NBC did snatch you up from 2015 to 2017 when you appeared on Days of Our Lives as Eduardo, the father of Rafe and Gabby, played by Galen Gehring, and your former One Life castmate Camila. You also worked with another One Life vet, Cassie DePaiva, as mm-hmm. Eve, and mm-hmm. Eduardo was also romantically linked to Lauren Coslow's Kate. So mm-hmm. what do you consider the highlights of your time in Salem? Well, um... I loved playing Eduardo. That dude, that dude was fun to play. I, I loved his backstory. I loved the way he was, he was cracked. Uh, you know, the, the thing, you know, when you can actually trace a character's uh, pain back to a specific uh, childhood um, heinous miscarriage of decency, that, that's like golden. You know, it just allows... It just allows you to carry this thing around in, in everything and have it just poke up now and then and stuff and have it justify his constant need to prove something that can't be proven. You know, he just couldn't help but destroy himself. He was he was so broken. So I love playing that dude. I think he's a great character. Um, and I thought that, uh, you know, I thought the thing that, that Cassie and I brought when she showed up and and we had to go through that, the death of our child and stuff. And that was molten. I thought working with her, she was like Vesuvius in that. Um, just amazing, wonderful thing. I love Camila. You know, I, you know, I feel like a certain, <laughs> you know, after you play someone's father, you start to feel a certain way toward them. And I, you know, I, I've been very interested in her, you know, sometimes I've felt the urge to give her advice that she didn't ask for and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I really love her, her passion, her, her power, uh, you know, her smarts and, uh, and she's so beautiful and I, it was wonderful to be able to work with her. I think Galen is, is, you know, and I, I wonder if, if he feels that I, that it's like dissing him to say it, but I think he's a social genius. He's one of the most amazingly fluid and charming and, effortlessly kind of in the pocket people in terms of just being among folks and saying things and you know the way he he presents you know his his affect he just he's just he's just an amazing dude and he's an amazing actor too and you know we when we played this stuff at the end where where i had to leave and disgrace my career you know he was just brilliant and all that so i love that dude I thought Jordy did a really nice job when he showed up. We had some really good moments too. And, you know, I just, uh, I loved it all. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, the the stuff that happened with, between uh, Eddie and, uh, and, uh, and Kate, you know, Lauren's character, just love that. I mean, that's among my, you know, top 10 all-time, uh, thespic relationships. I just, I just think the thing that she brings um, is so deep and uh, soulful and unique and smart. 
she's you know she's all she's all agog forever about Bowie, and <laughs> I you know and I thought yeah it figures that this person would be would worship at the altar of Bowie you know she's she's her taste is really impeccable in her sense of you know her the way her family works and she's just an amazing person and I I really cherished uh, you know that they gave us a chance to kind of explore what might happen between the two of them I also understand that if you really let that if you really let that flourish you're messing with really important machinery of the show you know she's not supposed to be doing that with anybody with, with what she was threatening to do with Eduardo I thought so I get why they were leery to like let it let it to give it its head you know they were they kept that reined in and and uh, you know I found a way to leave as well I regretted that though I thought that um you know I don't think that it was cool to like uh, to let him go I mean I get you know certain shows have certain cultures and certain feelings and expectations and the audience is attuned to seeing a certain style of culture and seeing a certain town that's a certain way and sometimes people that like the guy I was playing just don't fit in well there so you got to realize that you're just going to be dropping in and then you'll go away but you know if they called I'd be answering the phone so yeah, I made that clear so before you had been at days you'd been very briefly at B&B and then came your work as Jacob Nighthorse on the critically mm. acclaimed TV drama Longmire. Mm -hmm. um, you worked with Allie Walker, uh, another uh, Santa Barbara alum there. I know you'd also worked with her in other projects over the years. Um, she, I, I actually just was rereading an interview with Digest where she talked about how you and Marcy were such mentors to her and to Robin Wright when they were just starting out, uh, which I thought was very sweet. So mm -hmm. tell us about, you know, what you enjoyed the most about the Longmire experience. Well, you know, I, I rarely see any character on the page that I think, wow, this is for me. Uh, my normal um, reaction when I see any character that I'm reading for is, oh, I know 10 guys that could do this, if not 20. And some of them I'd cast before I would cast me. But when I read Jacob, I thought, oh, wow. There's something about this dude that, you know, is a good fit for me that I don't think will be um, the case with a lot of actors. And I remember the day I went in to audition for him and I looked around the room of all the people I was competing with on the moment and I thought, no, no, th these guys, these guys are not going to be able to get the guy the way I am. And so I just thought, what an amazing piece of good fortune, right? I had heard through the grapevine that Greer Shepard, who ran the show, liked my work, was a fan of mine. It had been said to me that she loved what I did. And I'm thinking, wow, that's great. But I, I've, I've auditioned for her several times and she's never cast me. So, but you, you know, you tuck that away. You think, well, okay, it's good to know. It's always good to hear the story that someone somewhere you don't necessarily have contact with has your back, right? And so sure enough, she, she, she gave me Jacob, you know, they, when I did the audition, everybody in the room was smiling except her. And she said to me, uh, you know, this guy is a bit of a politician. So do you think you could warm it up a little bit and just be a teeny bit charming? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> so I thought, okay, A, that means you need to smile. Somewhere in this, you need to smile. And so I did it again and I smiled and I looked up and she was smiling. So that was just, glorious to actually come across a character that was that sort of felt like it had my name on it and then of course from the get uh you know 
Robert Taylor played Walt is so special um, from the get when I didn't really when I was still really tight and not doing Jacob particularly well. I got to getting to work with him and, and having him give me power from the way he regarded me helped me get up on my feet. He, he, he let my work affect him on a way that a lesser actor would not have done. And that helped me get up and run. I just worked with John Cho on Cowboy Bebop, and I look at the stuff I did, and I'm thinking, my character is being held on the shoulders of John Cho's regard for him. The way John Cho was looking at my character makes the audience think about my character in a way that my work itself is not doing. Um, so you you depend on on the on the generosity of your colleagues in this business. And one of the things that was so extraordinary about Longmire is that people were pulling for each other. I know Adam Bartley, who played the Ferg, I would I came out one day and he said, man, people are going crazy for you. They're going to bring you in the bosom of this. You're going to be right at the heart of this. You're doing so great and stuff. And let me give you a big old hug. And I'm thinking, oh, man, it's my birthday, I guess. You know, I'm just getting treated like the guy. So it was a grand experience. And I thought that the um, the the value it had in among the indigenous people of the country is is so extraordinary. When I went to Standing Rock, and walk down the boulevard uh, to like start talking to you know the tribes from all over the world. Everybody knew about Longmire and loved it. Everybody held it in high regard and uh, gave me love for being a part of it. I got to become brothers with Zon McLernan, who's you know one of the most special people I've ever been around. And uh, we're just watching Cassidy Freeman on the Righteous Gemstones. Katie Sackoff is you know conquering the world. It's like. Bailey Chase is just just an extraordinarily cool guy. Lou Diamond Phillips has been so generous to me. You know, had me into a as an actor. He was given a, he was on a panel as a as a director, and he said, "I need to bring an actor to you know that I've directed. Will you come and be the actor I've directed?" A you know, gave me that at the party when we were finally saying goodbye to each other uh, in Santa Fe. You know, he he was cooking a big meal for everybody, and he said, uh, "Hey, will you?" Will you say grace? Will you bring your your grace to to the meal and say grace for us, please? Hey, we'd just be honored if you do that. You know, where you just feel, oh my God, I'm in, I'm I'm among you know my my relatives, you know, which is what you know the indigenous people believe. You know, we we think of we think of all our relations, you know, in our in our as we pass through the world in a way that not everybody does, and that that show was chock full of that. A lot of it coming down from Craig Johnson, who writes the books on which it's based, and the character that he created for Lou, Henry Standing Bear, who's a guy named Marcus Red Thunder in the real world. You know, as close a friend as he has, I would believe. And, you know, and, you know, it's the way the world, if the world were more like that, things would be a lot better than they are. So Longmire was in the pocket of telling that story, which is why people love it so much and still watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've done so much in your career in terms of your film career. You've been in movies with legendary stars like John Wayne and Meryl Streep. But before we let you go, can you possibly sum up with the daytime part of your multifaceted career, and particularly those years on Santa Barbara, have meant to you both personally and professionally? Well, I, that's a wonderful question. And thank you for all your generous comments. <laughs> I... Um, I really uh, came, I, I finally figured it out on Santa Barbara, you know, and I owe that um, 
all of that to the fact that I got the gig and I was forced to do, you know, 1,650 some performances of that guy and, and do so much work and so many uh, over and over and over again for so long. Um, it forced me to, to become a more efficient human being, forced me to learn how to manage my time and my energy on a level I was completely un- incapable of achieving earlier. It, it forced me to get my shit together. And then, of course, working with Marcy, uh, I, I finally was able to surrender to the idea of living in the moment and actually stepping into the place where I could actually be a better actor. You know, she could she could um, get it get get to me and provoke me in in ways that I had never happened before. And she did it over and over and over again. So you start to like relax into your own process. You know, you feel like you've you're safe because you have a partner that so gets you, so has your back, and and just delivers day in and day out. Just delivers, always delivers. So it it got me. Up on the horse, I actually started to be able to do it on a, on a much better level. So that was the, the best thing about it. And of course, the friendships, you know, they're lifelong friendships. Lane Davies has directed uh, both of my daughters on stage. Um, my daughters are great actors. And uh, he was just about to get my wife to go on stage with him and play his queen in, in one Shakespearean play just before her mom had a stroke and had to require all her attention. But he's family to me, you know, and and I, uh, you know, I, I just uh, Jill is one of my best friends. I mean, I owe I owe her so much, and she's helped me on so many levels that go beyond Santa Barbara. She's truly an excellent friend, and you know, it just uh, and uh, <laughs> I just worked on with Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul Mateen and Aisa Gonzalez on uh, Ambulance, which is coming out April eighth big old honking action movie with michael bay i got a real good part in that right the reason i the reason i got it is because denise chamian who was one of the casting people on santa barbara got in michael's ear and said you know a was great as this dude back in the day and he still got it and you should look at him so i was able to be in new zealand working on cowboy bebop and send a tape of myself to michael bay and he went yeah i'm gonna give that guy the part and it's a great part and I just, it's not huge, but it's a great part. So that basically is still Santa Barbara all these years down the road, you know, working in my favor. So it's a blessing that you can't really hard, hardly measure, but it seems to have actually happened. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I feel like we could talk to you all night. I want to talk to you all night. Um, but we thank you for all your time and for just sharing so many incredible stories of your wonderful career. And well, do you. look forward to seeing you in ambulance and hopefully back in daytime. Thank you so much. You got, these were wonderful questions and you made me feel just great. So I really appreciate it. And congratulations again on your 200th podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to A. Martinez for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Podcast.